We are going to be looking at the, the first four verses of the letter to Titus, um, and, and so that's what we're going to be looking at. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 will be our text um, for this morning. But just by way of introduction, Titus, it is named Titus because this is Paul's letter to a young man named Titus. It's a brief three-chapter letter, um, and, and this, this Titus was left in on the island of Crete. We'll find this out next week. But, but there's a church there, and Paul left Titus there, and he wanted Titus to order things in the church, to, to keep the church ordered, to organize and, and make sure that they are operating according to their purpose. And so Paul is writing to Titus concerning life in the church, and we'll see next week specifically the qualifications of the elders or the pastors there in the church. And, and not only that, but then how the, the Christians within the body are to relate to one another. That the life of the church is the function or the purpose that this letter addresses. And, and Titus is often grouped with First and Second Timothy, and the three of these letters together are known as the pastoral epistles. Which is simply to say, Paul writes to Timothy, he, he's in Ephesus, and he writes First and Second Timothy to Timothy in Ephesus, and he writes Titus to Titus, who's in Crete, and his, his point is, I want you guys to order and organize the church, because it's important. There's three letters in the New Testament that are written to order and organize life in the church. This should tell us that God cares about how the local church is organized, God is concerned with the life of the church. And one of the reasons this is the case, maybe the reason, is because, and hear me when I say this, God's mission in the world, that we, we just finished the, the Gospel of Matthew, the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the growth of the kingdom, the, the spread of the gospel is tied to the local church and its health. God cares about the church, everything from what it believes to how it's ordered to who its leaders are, how its members live. All of it is important because God's mission in the world is tied, directly tied to the life of the local church. So Paul's writing these letters, this one specifically to Titus, to make sure that Titus and those who would come after know what God desires for his body, the church. And so he's writing to Titus. We don't know much about Titus. We know Titus was a co-laborer with Paul, had been on several of his missionary journeys. He's mentioned by name in the letter to the Galatians as, as one who, who traveled with Paul up to Jerusalem. But we see in, in verse four of our, our, our text this morning that Titus is referred to as, as Paul's true child in a common faith, which is to say there's this relationship between Paul and Titus where, where Paul wants the, the, the church at Crete, but wants Titus to know that, that he trusts Titus, that, that he shares the calling, that, that he holds to the faith once for all delivered to the church. And so Titus should be listened to. Paul trusts Titus, and Paul wants those who, who receive this letter to know that he trusts Titus, so that they also will trust Titus. The, the theme of this letter, a short letter, but the, the theme of this letter, the keynote, if you will, the theme is the connection between what you believe and how you live. Right? So, so what we'll see throughout these three chapters is that these two strains cannot be separated. To put it another way, what you believe shapes how you live. And this is why, for instance, next week we'll see the qualifications for the elders or the leaders, the pastors in the church, and they're mostly character qualifications. And it's not only character qualifications, there is a right belief, right, so that one can, can, can admonish and correct false teaching, but the emphasis is clearly on one's life because truth bears fruit. 
That's going to be what what Titus, that's going to be the point he makes over and over. The the leaders must have lives that are shaped by doctrine. And so as as we go, it's not just the leaders that bear this responsibility. It's the entire people of God whose lives are to be marked by this this, this term godliness or or holiness. For instance, Paul will say that, that every Christian is to adorn the doctrine of God with their life. Do you see doctrine in life? You adorn doctrine with your life. It's every Christian who's to renounce ungodliness. It's every Christian who's to live an upright, a self-controlled, godly life in this world. So this letter is going to teach that doctrine and life cannot be separated. Right faith leads to right living. Or, uh, to other words, orthodoxy, right? So, so right belief leads to orthopraxy, right doing. There's a connection that can't be separated, and we'll see that in the coming weeks as we study the three chapters of Titus. But this morning, we're going to limit our study to the first four verses, and that's where we're going to begin. So Titus chapter 1, um, you, you can turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the one on the back in front of you, you're welcome to, to use that. Or if you left yours at home, you're welcome to use that one. Uh, it's going to be on page 998 in that pew Bible. Um, but I'm going to read Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then I will pray for us. But here's Paul's letter to Titus. He begins verse 1 this way. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of, our, of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let me pray as we begin this morning. Father, I pray that as we, as we move through this letter to Titus, as, as we complete it and as we look back at these weeks, I pray that we would be able to, as a church, be able to look back and rejoice that you changed us through your word and our study of it. I, I pray that we would be able to, to look back and, and recognize that you use this letter to more closely align our right doctrine with right living. That, that's, our, that's our aim. That's our desire. We want to live godly lives in according with the truth, your truth. We confess that our walk does not always match our talk, that that goes for all of us. We are in need of your grace to help us to to repent when we fail, to live up to our calling, and then to to walk in new obedience. And so we just, as your people, we confess that we need grace and mercy even now. We need the renewal of the Holy Spirit who's been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I ask that, that spirit that you would work. If, if you don't supernaturally work to bring about your will in us, in our minds and our hearts, then we won't change. And so we plead with you. We ask that you would change us through our study of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen. Well, there's only four verses here. I have a lot of words written down to say about it, so we'll see how this goes. Um, but, but as we look at this, this is just the introduction to Paul's letter. 
And his purpose in introducing himself, he wants to establish his role specifically as an apostle, and he wants to bring God's people to faith and truth and thus to life. That's why he's writing and why he's introducing himself as an apostle. But we'll see as I look through these verses, as I studied, in this introduction, Paul actually lays out the Christian life. He lays out this process, this this process of the Christian life from beginning to end. And so the, the sermon title is actually The Pilgrim's Path. The Pilgrim's Path, because as we work through these verses, we're simply going to follow a course that Paul plots out through these verses. And so Paul will lay these, these, this path out, this pilgrim's path, and there's six points on this path. And, and as we go through, I simply want us to recognize the, the, the path, and then we can ask ourselves, well, where are we on this path? Okay, so, so the pilgrim's path, here's the outline, and, and stick with me as we work through these, because I hope to show you these from the, the verses. But the six points of this passage of the pilgrim path are, first we'll see election, and then second, we'll see preaching. So this is Paul explaining the path. It's his preaching. For us as non-apostles, it's hearing. Uh, third will be faith. Fourth will be knowledge of the truth. Fifth will be godliness. And then sixth will be eternal life. So those are the, the six points that we will run through as, as we study these four verses. And so we begin, begin there at election. Look at verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So, so Paul here introduces himself and, and refers to his status. He's an apostle, right? So, so a, little, uh, a little history. The apostles were those who were commissioned by Jesus Christ. They, they had authority. The apostles were the one, ones who the, the resurrected Christ had, had committed and commissioned to carry on his teachings. They had a unique authority. And although Paul was not one of the 12, he was one untimely born, but he did interact and, and encounter the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And so he was counted as one of the apostles, as one of those with, with unique authority. And so when Paul says, I'm an, a, an apostle, it is a, a, an attempt to legitimize his authority. He's not just one, some random guy who's writing his thoughts. He has been commissioned by Christ himself. And there's an authority and so as we read this letter, we recognize that the authority of the apostles is, is still here. It continues even to this day, not because, now hear me, not because that, that office still exists, right? There are no more apostles living today. If you think you're an apostle, you know someone thinks they're an apostle, please see me. That, that doesn't exist, right? But the authority of the apostles exists today through the writings, through the, the letters that they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there's authority through the apostles. So as we read the letter of Titus, that what Paul is writing to Titus, we receive it as those underneath it. It has authority over us. And so that, that, uh, that shapes how we read this letter from the apostle Paul. And so he, he, he refers to himself as a servant, an apostle, but then he gives the reason behind his apostleship. That's what, that's what he's getting here in verse one. A servant and apostle, notice what he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So, so what's going on here? Paul is saying his goal or his purpose as an apostle was the faith of God's elect. That, that's why he was called. So, so most basically, Paul viewed his apostleship as, as something to bring about the faith of God's elect. That, that's, why he, that's why he's an apostle. That's his purpose, to bring about the faith of God's elect. Now, we get to the faith in, in point three, but we have to ask ourselves here, what does Paul mean when he refers to the elect? The faith, faith of the elect. Who are the elect? 
Well, this, this word is used three places in the New Testament. Here in Romans 8, where, where Paul says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? And then in Colossians 3, where Paul says, as, as God's elect or God's chosen ones put on compassion and live this specific way. But in all these cases, which is the case here, the elect are, are a clear reference to, to God's people, to people of faith, specifically the common faith, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so the elect that Paul has in mind are those who, whose faith is in Jesus Christ. And so Paul understands his role as an apostle to bring about the faith of God's elect. Now here's the thing. This is important. Paul's logic seems to imply that election precedes faith, right? That's his logic, right? Paul's ministry, his preaching of the gospel is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So they are elect before their faith comes about, right? That that seems to be how he views his ministry as an apostle. Thus, the first point on the pilgrim's, pilgrim's path is election. When it comes to the Christian life, election precedes faith. Now, now, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, I can assure you that your journey began in eternity past, when God graciously and according to his own mercy chose you. God elected you to be one of his children, a member of his new covenant people purchased by the blood of Christ. That's what Paul means by election. It's God's choice of individuals to salvation. And, and this choice comes before faith. It's not as though You put your faith in Christ and then God retroactively chooses you. That's not how the timeline works. Nor is it that God knows that you're gonna choose him so that he then reactively chooses you. That's not how the timeline works either. God chooses. And then he uses the ministry of Paul or or another Christian and the sharing of the gospel to bring about faith. That's the logic that Paul's using here. Now I'll say more about this in a second. But Paul says his apostleship is for the sake of the faith of the elect. So the election is the first stop on the pilgrim's path, but we must then ask the Apostle Paul what his role is. What role does he play in the faith of God's elect? How does he see himself bringing about this faith? That's the second stop on the path, which is preaching. Second point, preaching. So if Paul's goal is the faith of God's elect, then what he does, then what does he do, or how does he bring about the faith of God's elect? To his answer, jump down to verse 3. Now we'll go back to verse one in a minute, but under this point, in order to understand how Paul views his role, we have to look at verse three. So, God, so down in verse three, Paul references God's sure and certain plan, right? This promise of eternal life before the ages began, but Paul says in verse three that this promise of eternal life was at the proper time manifested. His salvation was manifest, or their salvation was manifested in his word through what? Through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. So this eternal life, which was promised before the ages began, with which the Christians there on Crete had believed, right? This eternal life had been made manifested through God's word, which was preached by the apostle Paul. And so Paul in one through three, he's circling all the way back to his calling of apostleship. His goal or his aim was the faith of God's elect, which he fulfilled that aim by proclaiming the gospel. He preached the gospel to those on the island of Crete. Or, or for that matter, wherever he went. This was Paul's aim as an apostle. This is why he went on his missionary journeys, to preach Christ where Christ had not yet been named. Thus, the elect come to faith through the preaching or the sharing of the gospel. 
And so if you're a Christian, the second point of your path isn't necessarily preaching, though as a Christian, you are called to share the gospel, to to be on someone else's timeline, their pilgrim path. But here, if you're a Christian, the second point on your path is, is hearing and hearing the gospel. Someone, if you're a Christian, it means someone at some point shared the gospel with you. Now, now we, we tend to think that it's a one-time thing, but that's rarely ever the case. We, we kind of expect, well, if I don't close the deal in one, one, one interaction, then I failed. No, more than likely, if you think about your own story, you came to faith uh, over a period of time. You, you encountered the gospel, the message over and over and over until eventually one day, one night, one, 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 one revival service or, or one sermon, one conversation, one instance, it just clicked. It clicked and, and you believed the gospel. Faith was granted to you. Now that's how it works. Paul gave his life to proclaiming the gospel because the faith of the elect, the elect does not come any other way. So, so regardless of what you believe about the specifics of election, right, the Bible is explicitly clear that faith comes through hearing. Faith of God's people comes through a proclamation of the message. And so, so we can pray for our kids, we can pray for our neighbors, we can pray for our coworkers, we can pray all that we want, and we should pray. But no one will ever come to faith apart from the message of the gospel. That's how it works. Someone hears the gospel and they believe. And so if you're a Christian here today, think about the people or the person that God used in your life. Think about the individuals that God used when he saved you. Because although God is the only one who does save, God uses individuals, and it's through the lives of individuals that the gospel message is proclaimed and preached and shared. And so think about it. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher. Maybe they're, not yet, maybe they're not still alive. But thank God for the individuals that he used to save you. They don't get the glory. God gets the glory, but he uses people. So we give thanks for the individuals that he used. Now, on the other hand, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I wonder, I wonder if there are people in your life who've been praying for you to become a Christian. I wonder, I wonder if they've told you, I, I, I'm praying for you. Maybe they've been sharing the gospel with you for, for weeks or months or years. Maybe, maybe you know someone who's, whose desire, you know their desire is for you to come to faith in Christ. And if that's you, I wonder if your relationship with them and, and all that's happened in your life to, to lead you up to this point, I wonder if it's all leading to right now so that you hear the gospel that Christ died for you in your place, was crucified, buried, and rose again to, to grant, grant you new life, to call you to faith and repentance. I wonder if all of that has been leading to right now so that you hear that message and it clicks. If that's you, come to Christ. Faith in him is the call. Forgiveness of sins comes through Christ alone. Eternal life comes through Christ alone. The gospel is good news. And the gospel, when it's heard, is to be responded to in faith. And so I wonder, why would you still refuse to come to Christ if that's you here today? Well, this leads to the third stop on our pilgrim's path, which is the the response, the, the necessary response for anyone to become a Christian, which is faith. Look, point three, faith. Paul says he's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So, so Paul preaches the gospel so that God's elect might hear the good news of the gospel and respond with faith. Right? So, so again, this is a telltale sign of, of who is elect. Right? So, so the elect don't have some special marking on their forehead. There's no special knowledge of who's in and who's out. No, the elect are those whose faith is in Christ. God's elect are those who hear the gospel and respond with genuine faith. 
The main question is not, well, who is and who isn't elect? That's not the question to be asking for yourself or for someone else. That's not the question. The question is, the main question, the only question is, what are you going to do with Christ? That's the question. How will you respond to the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? We proclaim, Paul proclaimed, the gospel. He didn't say, well, are you elect or are you not elect? Well, let me decide, and then I'll determine what I share with you. No, he preaches the gospel. Because the gospel is not a gospel for only the elect. The gospel is for sinners who've been separated from God because of their sin, who can only be reconciled or brought back to God through faith in Christ. And that's everyone. There's no distinction. And so Paul preaches the gospel. He had gone to Crete. In this situation, he had been on Crete. He had preached the gospel. And there were people on Crete, on the island, that as Paul was there, who, who heard the gospel and responded in faith. Men, women, and probably young folks. And Paul preaches the gospel. He proclaims that the, the, the Messiah has been crucified. It was Christ, and he's been raised, and he's Lord of all. Now repent of your sins and put your faith in him. I wasn't there, but I assume Paul didn't have an altar call. Paul, Paul didn't say, hey, every head bow, every eye closed. Now, if you want to follow this, Jesus, just slip up your hand. I, see that. I don't think that's what Paul did. I think he proclaimed the gospel and said, Repent respond. And people responded. They were cut to their hearts and they cried out, what must I do? He says, put your faith in Christ. God saves people through this message of the gospel. The power was not Paul. The the clincher was not the wisdom or the eloquence of Paul. The clincher was the power of God. God's power is seen when, when sinners hear the gospel and respond in faith. And as many people in Crete or or in Galatia or in Ephesus or in Philippi, there were many who did respond to the gospel with faith. Many were saved. That's why the churches existed there. And that's how Paul operated. But we fail to remember that there were almost certainly more people who did not respond to the gospel with faith as Paul was on his missionary journeys. There are people in all those places who, who heard Paul preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, heard Titus proclaim the gospel. They heard it and they kept on living their lives as though the message meant absolutely nothing. And though Paul desired that everyone come to faith in Christ, he knew that not everyone would. There was something that that distinguished those who believed and those who didn't, and that was faith. But Paul knew there were different types of soil. He wasn't responsible for, for the production of the planted seed. He simply scattered the seed, and he trusted God to bring about the growth. Thus, Paul's confidence wasn't in his ability or in the ability of his hearer. Paul's confidence was in God, specifically that God had his people, There are many people in this city. God has many people. And so Paul's confidence is that God will save his people. Now, I'm going to trace this rabbit because this is really, I think, important to understand how Paul operated. I want you to listen to how Paul described his his ministry in Corinth. You can write this down, 1 Corinthians 1. I want you to listen to how he explains what he did in Corinth. Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, starting verse 21 and following. This is, what, this is how Paul, listen to how he explains. He says, it pleased God, so he's talking about his ministry there in Corinth. He said, it pleased God through the folly of what I preach to save those who believe. Right? So it's a, it's a foolish message, he says. I preached a foolish message in, in Corinth. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We're not going to give them what they want. But, verse 23, but I, we, we preach Christ crucified, right? That's a foolish message. 
That's what Paul says. I preach this, this outlandish message that God became a man and was crucified, right? The message of the cross, it's folly. But, but Paul says, we preach the gospel. But listen how he continues. This message that he preached, he says, is, now remember the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. He says, this message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. Now stop right there. Who else exists in the world at that time? There's Jews and Gentiles. That's everyone. That's everyone. And so Paul says, this message, this foolish message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. There's no one else. So why does Paul preach? They don't, they're not gonna get it. Well, Paul adds a third category. In describing his gospel ministry, there's a third category, but, verse 24, 1 Corinthians 1, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the message of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, now do you see how Paul views the hearers of his gospel? He preaches to Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't neglect preaching the gospel to anyone. Yet most of the Jews heard the message of the crucified and risen Christ, and they saw only a stumbling block. The Messiah, our people's Messiah, Abraham's offspring, would not be crucified. That's crazy. So stumbling block to the Jews who heard this message, and to the Gentiles, it's folly. That is not the wisdom of our age. That, that makes no sense. But Paul preached the gospel because there's a third group made up of Jews who didn't see it as, as a stumbling block and Gentiles who didn't think the message was foolishness but, this foolishness, but this third group, both Jews and Gentiles, heard the message and thought, that is my salvation. That's the wisdom of God. God would save me by sending his son. I can't believe that. Yes, I want Jesus. Right? That's the third group. And Paul says what makes the difference between that third group and the other two is those who are specifically, the word is called. Called. It is an effectual call. Through the gospel, there are people who hear it and are called to Christ. And that's why I, went, that's why I, I traced that because it gets back to the starting point. What made the called to differ? Was it that they were smarter or more powerful or more influential? Was it that they were more qualified no, 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 no. There's nothing in them that distinguishes them. The, the difference is that they were chosen, that they were elect, or as Paul would say in Romans 8, they were predestined, right? And that choice can only be traced back to the sovereign will of God. Now, I realize this is a complicated issue, or can be, with lots of strong emotions and feelings, and, and I want to be sensitive to that, and so, so if you're listening to me and you're like, I can't believe any of that, and you want to talk to me or yell at me, I'm happy to set, a to set aside time and sit and listen. And I mean that. But the reason I, I, I go here is because this is the foundation of Paul's gospel ministry. And there's great encouragement for the Christian in this teaching because Paul doesn't save people. You can't save anyone. That, that should actually be really freeing news. Are there people you long to be saved? You don't have to do it. You can't do it. Paul preached the gospel and God saved people. We, we share the gospel. It's not our message. It's not our salvation to work. It's God's message. We preach it and God works through his message. God saves people. That's the foundation for faithful evangelism. And so the encouragement is, is for us to share the gospel, to, to be talking about Christ, to be bold in our conversations, in our relationships, trusting God to bring about the faith of his people. That's what Paul did. Well, this leads to the third, or the fourth point, the knowledge of the truth. 
So, so Paul aimed to bring about the faith of God's elect, but that's not all he aimed to do because in addition to their faith, Paul, he says, also aimed for their knowledge of the truth. And so this is the next stop on the pilgrim's path. path. This, this message of gospel certainly falls under the realm of truth, but there's more to that. Right? The Christian, once he or she comes to faith, once he or she believes the gospel, this Christian now has the rest of his or her life to grow in the knowledge of the truth. And so, so in this context, the knowledge of the truth is more than just coming to faith. Right? It, it's a, a growing consciousness or a grasp of the truth that develops after the initial act of faith, which is simply to say that the Christian life is a continual process of growing in the knowledge of the truth. That, that's, the, that's the path of the Christian. So when someone hears and believes the gospel, they affirm or they believe the truth of the gospel, and that truth is in what directs or shapes their life. The truth changes how you live. And as I mentioned, this will be a huge part of Paul's, Paul's argument in Titus and in other pastoral epistles, how you live matters. In fact, Paul say one way to discern the false teachers is to look at their lives. Because they can say one thing, but their lives don't, don't, doesn't match it. Because if they're teaching the truth, their lives would li- be in accordance with what they proclaimed. Because the truth bears fruit. And so Paul's view of the Christian life, his perspective on the pilgrim's path is that this path begins with faith in the gospel, but it continues on the path of knowledge of the truth. And so when it comes to Christian life, we must never make it less than knowledge. Right? There's a cognitive, cognitive side of the Christian faith. What you believe matters. It matters. Theology matters. Doctrine matters. Right, true, right belief is essential to the gospel. If you don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, right? You can't be a Christian. If you don't believe that he rose from the dead, you can't be a Christian. So, so right belief, knowledge is essential. The doc, doctrine or truth is the path that the Christian life must tread from start to finish. And so as I thought about this specific sermon, and as I thought about this path, I, I want to stop and I just want to encourage you, and I do want to encourage you, as I thought about our church, as, as I thought about all of us as a group, I thought collectively, I thought individually, my, my concern is that most of us, at least some of us, have stalled here at this point. To come to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel is a necessary step on the path. It's an essential step, but coming to faith in Christ, believing the gospel is far from the final step. The Christian life is lived in a state of constant growth. The Christian is to constantly grow in the knowledge of the truth. And this is maintained by a desire and appetite for God's word. Christians are to live by the truth that's found nowhere but in God's word. As one theologian put it, God did not give us his word so that it might merely beat on our ears. Right? I love podcasts, right? We have, we have access to lots of information, but if all it does is beat on your ears and doesn't transform your life, you're missing the point. God intends for his word to be our food and to shape our lives. Growing as Christians necessarily involves knowledge. I don't want, I don't want to minimize that. When you become a Christian, you must believe certain things. But once you're saved, you don't immediately understand the, or grasp the entirety of, of the teachings of the Bible. Right? You're, you're a baby Christian. You may not know much, but you know Christ died for you, and that's enough. But then you're set on a path where, where you grow in knowledge and understanding, and, and you mature in the faith. This, this was the thinking behind the author of Hebrews. 
He's frustrated with the, the, the Hebrews he's writing to. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the basics. You need milk, not solid food. The, the problem with the people he's writing to is that their knowledge and their maturity was not where it ought to have been. And they were stunted. They were not where they should have been. And I wonder how many of us, how many of you, if you look at your life and you look at how long you've been following Christ, I'm, I'm, thought, I'm thinking days and weeks and months and years, if you look at how long you've been following Christ, if you were to ask yourself, honestly, am I right now, and however long, you've been a Christian, am I at an appropriate place of maturity? Specifically as it relates to Christian knowledge. Now on one hand, none of us, myself included, will never be able to say that we're where we ought to be. So hear me say that. You can't use that as an excuse because I'm acknowledging that. It's going to be true our entire pilgrimage. We're always going to have more to learn, more ways to grow, ways to, 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 to stretch. But on the other hand, the question is, are you at a place relative to your time as a Christian that is appropriate? So, so would someone who looked at the length of your Christian life and then sat down and asked you questions about your faith and about historic Christian doctrines, would they think, yeah, that seems about right? That, that seems about four decades worth of Christianity right there. Or would they think, ooh, I'm not sure that knowledge is commensurate with that amount of time. That's a question for us all to consider. And if, if you think you're not as mature as you ought to be, the necessary follow-up question is simply this, well, why not? Well, what's the issue? Why aren't you where you should be? Consider these things. I would encourage you, take time to ponder these things. But, but as you do, here's, here's the good news. Now's not the, now is not too late to get back on the path. Now is not too late to start growing again or for the first time. Now is not too late to start diving into God's word, to start taking advantage of, of Bible studies or classes that are available here to be growing, to begin growing in your knowledge of the truth. So why not start today? But there's a natural progression. If you're, if you're still here, and you're still breathing, and regardless of how long you've been a Christian, if you're still here, you have need of growth. We all are moving towards maturity that can be seen in, notice this, this is the scary part, author of Hebrews at least understands that maturity should be seen in an ability to teach or instruct others. Right? He says, by this time you ought to have been teachers. Right? There's a progression assumed. So I want to ask, do you have a grasp of the scriptures? Do you have a firm handle on the truth such that you could teach others? Now, I'm not going to have a sign up for Sunday school teachers in the hallway. That's not my point. I, I'm not, I don't care if you're a good teacher methodologically or not. I don't care if you've been trained as, as a Sunday school teacher or not. I'm asking, do you know God's word? Do you bleed Bible when you're cut? Because the mature Christian is progressing in his or her knowledge of the truth such that he or she ought to be able to teach others. And I'm not talking about in a Sunday school class or up here behind a pulpit. I'm talking about in a conversation with another Christian, you ought to be able to encourage them with God's word. The place this happens, we'll see in chapter two, is through relationships between older and younger. But speaking of Sunday school classes, I'm going to be starting a class next week. We're going to meet upstairs and the focus will be studying the Bible. Right, so it'll be upstairs. Next week, it's, it's going to be a very basic beginner's level, co- level course, if that's what you need, or a refresher for the person who needs to be refreshed, who's been a Christian for a long time and needs to be refreshed in how to study the Bible. So that's going to be next week, 9.30 upstairs. Ask me if you have questions.
But lest we think that knowledge is all that's needed, Paul connects knowledge with the other side of the coin because knowledge, at least true knowledge, gospel knowledge is never simply for the sake of knowledge. Look at how he ends verse two. Paul, servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Point five on the pilgrim's path is godliness. And these get shorter as we go. Don't worry. I know I'm running out of time. But fourth, fifth, godliness. Paul's point here is to highlight the connection between knowledge and godliness. Right? True knowledge of the truth is manifested or shown in godly behavior. So for Paul, the knowledge of truth accords with godliness or leads to godliness. There is a, a walk, a way of living that is fitting for those who know the truth. Like I said at the beginning, this is the theme throughout the letter. Right? There's people, Paul would say in later in chapter 1 of Titus, that there's people who profess to know God, but deny him by their works. Do you see that? Do you see the problem? A knowledge of God that doesn't fit with godliness. Instead, their lives, their works deny that they know God. Right? That, that's the dynamic at work. Godliness is, is the, the outflow of the truth. Right belief and right behavior are inseparable. Listen to one, one commentator, how he explains. By thus insisting upon the essential connection between faith and godliness, Paul at once strikes the keynote of the epistle and tacitly condemns the ungodly myths peddled by the false teachers. As God chose us to be holy, the only convincing evidence of our election is found in that life of godliness, which is the fruit of faith. Christianity is based on the truth of the gospel and demands the response of faith lived out in a godly life. So godliness is the fifth stop on this pilgrim's path, which is the natural outflow of knowing the truth. Paul will have a lot more to say about this as we work through this letter, but for now we move on past godliness. We'll come back there in the coming weeks. But final, sixth step, sixth stop on the pilgrim's path is eternal life. So Paul, verse two, in hope of eternal life, he says. Now it's necessary to understand, right, in this hope of eternal life, Paul is, is wrapping this in his calling as an apostle. So as we said, he, first he sees his apostleship, the purpose of it to bring about the faith of God's elect. That's the first purpose. Right? Then he, he clarifies by mentioning um, their subsequent knowledge of the truth and godliness, but all that's under the faith of God's elect. And that's the first purpose. But here in verse two, Paul is giving a second main purpose, which is connected, but it's of eternal life, which is to say that the gospel message and faith in Christ is the means, his apostleship is the means by which Christians obtain eternal life. Paul would say that the gospel is a message of life. To be a Christian is to possess eternal life, and that comes through faith in Christ. And so notice that Paul says that this eternal life comes through faith in Christ, and he ministers in, Paul says, in the hope of eternal life. Now, now, when we hear that word hope, right, we immediately tend to think of wishful thinking, right? So, so I hope that jacket is still on sale when I go to Marshall's tomorrow. Or I, I hope that team wins the Super Bowl in the next 20 years. Or, or I hope traffic isn't bad uh, down when I'm trying to get to Beach Road with all that construction, right? And, and in those cases, right, hope is nothing more than wishful thinking. It may happen, it may not. In the case of your sports team, depending on who it is, it, it may never happen again. But that's okay, we got three. So when Paul, we read Paul, his aim as apostle is in the hope of eternal life. We might be tempted to think Paul is basing his entire life in ministry on wishful thinking. Maybe it'll happen, maybe you'll get to eternal life, maybe you won't, but that's not how Paul uses the word hope. This, this word hope is certainty, surety. And you don't need to know Greek to know that, you just need to be able to read. 
Paul says that this hope in eternal life came from God, right? Well, that's enough, but he, he further clarifies God who could never lie. It's been promised by God who never lies. And, and so this is him convincing the surety of this eternal life. It's, it's not hope in wishful thinking. It's hope in it's going to come to pass because it's from God, right? The certainty of the eternal life that comes through faith in Christ through this gospel could not be more sure because it's not Paul's promise. It's not Paul's gospel, and this is God's gospel. This is God's promise. And this promise and this pilgrim path is heading towards a certain destination. There's something sure that this path is heading towards. It is the celestial city of pilgrim's progress. It's what drives Christian through this, through all that he goes through. He thinks about the Lord in the celestial city and he knows it's there and he's going towards it. He can see it, his whole pilgrimage. And this faith in Christ that leads to eternal life Right? That, that means life that will never end. But Paul also here says God's promise was before the ages began. Do you see that? So, so Paul views his temporal ministry, his apostleship, in the context of eternal past, eternity past and eternity future. God makes a promise, and God's going to fulfill that promise. It's going to extend into eternity. And Paul says, and I have an opportunity in my little time here on earth to bring about God's plan for his people to be saved. And so Paul, through his ministry, accomplishes God's eternal plan. I mean, that's unbelievable. And it's not just the case for Paul and the Cretans. It's the case for any Christian. When you become a Christian, God was bringing to pass his eternal plan. So when you came to faith, it wasn't just, just so happened that, that a revival speaker came to, to Virginia in, in the 1980s. And you just happened to walk forward and, and accept Christ. It was God working out his eternal plan in your life. This gives a bit of perspective. This is why Paul can endure all kinds of suffering and persecution. He's taking part in God's eternal plan. His suffering, his hardship, his comfortability was all temporary. Paul knew that God's eternal plan was, was being worked out in his ministry. And so Paul was a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he was so for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And he, he did all of this in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, just the right time, God manifested in his word through the preaching with which Paul had been entrusted. That is his ministry as an apostle. And in that aim, we see the pilgrim's path. And so I just, two questions I want to I close with. First, consider the hope of the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it's God's good news. God brings it to pass and God ensures that it's carried out. And so as, as if, you're, if you're his child, if you're a follower of Christ, well, you have a message to proclaim, but it's not on you to bring it to pass or to fulfill it. God has promised it. And our hope is sure. Christians are people of hope because our pilgrim's path is leading towards glory. We're all headed towards that celestial city, right? When we all get to heaven, what a, what a day of rejoicing that will be, right? That's the Christian's hope. We are headed there. And the sure hope of that final destination fuels faithful obedience, godliness now. And so just consider the hope of the gospel. But also the, the, the main question to leave with is just to ask, where are you on this path? Where are you? I'd encourage you to read Read through these verses again. Consider this path and ask, where are you? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you stalled in your growth of the knowledge of truth? Consider it and just 
ask, what would God have you do in response to these verses? Let's pray as we, as we close, and then we'll sing in response.